The Supreme Court's reversal of Roe v. Wade has ignited a fierce debate about bodily autonomy. But for all the discussion about women's bodies, it's strange how little we know or seem to care about their basic physiology. Historically, most medical studies have focused on male subjects, and even a basic understanding of women's anatomy has been overlooked by science. If you have the entire human race and about half of them are missing from your data sets and from your research, that's not a women's health knowledge gap. That's just a huge knowledge gap in your understanding of the human body. And indifference to female biology harms more than half the world's population. I'm Seth Shostak, and this is Big Picture Science from the SETI Institute. I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, How to Fill That Knowledge Gap, a journalist says that if we're going to study women's bodies, we need to talk about them frankly and say words like vagina, for example, without shame. A researcher looks to cure the painful disease of endometriosis by growing a uterus in her lab. And we give recognition to a medical pioneer that is long overdue. This episode, with a euphemistic title befitting our historical reluctance to talk candidly about something that should be straightforward, is called Lady Parts. We'll begin with the story of someone who long ago recognized that women's health needs were being underserved. She was a doctor who treated women and children and wrote a book about women's health in an era when a war between North and South had cleaved the nation. Rebecca Lee Crumpler was a woman about which not much was known. It's been hard to find a lot of information about her except by some very deep digging. Rebecca Lee left behind few personal papers, but in 2013, one person began researching her legacy. I'm Dr. Melody T. McLeod, an obstetrician-gynecologist based in Atlanta, Georgia, and founder and medical director of Atlanta Women's Healthcare. But she was a black female who was born in Delaware prior to the Civil War, and she was raised by her aunt. Although she had no formal training, her aunt cared for neighbors with cuts, broken bones, and illnesses. And Rebecca basically observed her aunt taking care of uh, sick people, and I believe that had a major impression upon uh, Rebecca's psyche and her desire to help other people. In 1852, Rebecca Lee moved to Boston and worked as a nurse. Her hard work prompted several doctors to encourage her to apply to a groundbreaking new medical school, the New England Female Medical College. Although it had accepted only white women, Rebecca Lee was admitted. When she graduated with a doctorate in medicine, she made history. As the Civil War raged in 1864, Rebecca Lee became the first black female physician in the United States. She had faced twin prejudices of sexism and racism to earn her medical degree. At the time, there were 54,000 physicians in the United States, 270 were women, 180 were black men. Now the profession included a lone black woman, but as a reflection of the times, the degree was presented to Mrs. Rebecca Lee Negress. I would think it must have been a very difficult time to be a black person in the nation. Granted, she was in the Northeast uh, and not here in Atlanta where I am in the South. But to be received as a woman and as a black woman going into a profession that mostly consisted of white men, 
I, I think uh, you know, I, I can relate to that, <laughs> truly. The New England Female Medical College is now the Boston University School of Medicine. But even the university overlooked the legacy of its famous alumnus, something that Dr. McLeod, a graduate of the school, pointed out to a colleague in 2013. And he mentioned to me that BU School of Medicine had begun a, an historical exhibit on the uh, first floor of the medical school. So I asked him, I said, oh, that's really cool. I said, do you have one for Rebecca Lee Crumpler? And he said, no, we don't. And so I said, well, why not? She urged the university to correct this. And in 2016, uh, I helped unveil the exhibit to Rebecca Lee Crumpler at BU School of Medicine. Meanwhile, about this time and also in Boston, someone else was doing her own research about the city's historic resident. My name is Victoria Gall. And I am a volunteer with the Friends of the Hyde Park Library and the Hyde Park Historical Society. We are here in Fairview Cemetery, which is in Hyde Park. In 2019, Victoria made a surprising discovery. I decided I was going to research where people of significance to Hyde Park were buried. So when I found out that Rebecca Crumpler was buried in Fairview Cemetery, I came to the office and I asked where, because I knew where it should be, but I didn't see any markers. Noticing that, I said, well, she's a part of history. We need to do something about it. If Rebecca Lee Crumpler's single achievement was that she broke barriers to become the first black woman doctor, well, that alone would be worthy of recognition and amending the historical record. But many of Dr. Crumpler's notable achievements came after medical school in the form of important contributions she made to public health and to women's health. Her focus was the care of the poor, especially black women and children. And she nurtured that interest by traveling to learn more about treatments. And one of the places she went was to Virginia after the Civil War, and she was around thousands and thousands of poor black men, women, and children. Motivated by the humanitarian crisis that was developing and wanting field work that would provide her with, as she wrote later, ample opportunities to become acquainted with the diseases of women and children, Dr. Crumpler had joined the Freedmen's Bureau. An agency of early reconstruction, it was established to help millions of newly freed black people, along with hundreds of poor white people, find food, housing, and medical care in the South. Rebecca was now married to Arthur Crumpler, who had arrived in Boston after escaping slavery in the South. In 1866, Arthur and Dr. Crumpler moved to Virginia. So she went there to be a physician with the Freedmen's Bureau, and she treated recently freed slaves that the white doctors refused to touch. That meant wading into tent communities where refugees lived and where epidemics of cholera and smallpox were widespread. So I think that, to me, was a, a big thing for her, to be that courageous, to up, uproot from where you've been for a long time, to go to a war-torn community much further south than where you were, uh, not knowing what really you're going to run into, what kind of conditions you're going to run into, what kind of racism more than what you may have experienced in Boston. Indeed, sometimes the MD after her name wasn't enough to overcome prejudice in her profession. From our research, I've been able to find that any hospitals that were there 
I'm aware that she had often been denied admitting privileges at times to admit any patients she felt needed to be admitted. And also some of her prescriptions were refused by pharmacists because they refused to honor her prescriptions. In 1869, Dr. Rebecca Lee Crumpler returned to Boston and opened a medical practice in her home on Beacon Hill, which was mainly an African-American neighborhood at the time. She primarily served women and children, all whom she treated regardless of their ability to pay. In the mid-19th century, many fundamental discoveries in medicine were still to come. Germ theory hadn't been fully accepted yet. Physicians washed their hands before surgery, but daily hand washing hadn't been adopted at home. Because scientists and doctors considered women to be smaller versions of men, with reproductive organs turned outside in, as they put it, there was very little research on female anatomy. And as a result, many women's diseases were missed or inadequately treated. And anything that flummoxed Victorian era doctors was likely chalked up to hysteria. My name is Perry Klass. I'm professor of journalism and pediatrics at New York University. When we think about women's health care, we have to take into account what we'll call either modesty or shame. That is to say, the issue of being examined and being looked at, especially by a male physician, having to name parts of the body that are not acknowledged and not discussed, and then sometimes having to try to figure out whether what's going on with you is normal or not in a world in which these are not subjects that can be openly discussed. When Dr. Crumpler began seeing patients, there were still very few women in the country with medical degrees. So we can imagine that for female patients, coming to see her was an unprecedented experience. I think we can say that all of the women who were doing that were, in some sense, doing something unusual and pioneering, and she was doing something particularly unusual and pioneering as the first black woman with a medical degree. She also had a strong interest in social justice. She spoke at anti-slavery meetings in Boston. She worked on women's rights issues. She believed in employment for women, women's votes. She was totally against alcohol and smoking, and she really believed that families should start saving for their children at a young age. So she had ideas that continue on to this day. We can read them in our own words. Dr. Crumpler took two decades of her journal notes and published a book, the first black woman doctor to do so. And she wrote it in 1883. No one knows how she's paid for it. It's called A Book of Medical Discourses. And Seth, I have a copy right here. You do? Really? I mean, has it been in your family long? What's the deal? No, I ordered it from a publisher specializing in old books. The first page here is a dedication. I will read it to mothers, nurses, and all who may desire to mitigate the afflictions of the human race. It was in the profession what we would call a self-help manual, and it really focuses on treatment for women and children. She wanted this to be about prevention, which is a key issue today, you know, preventive medicine. Uh, She said, there is a cause for every ailment 
and that it may be in the power to remove it. My chief desire in presenting this book is to impress upon somebody's mind the possibility of prevention. Dr. Crumpler had seen many young lives prematurely cut short by infectious disease and unclean water. In her book, she recommends avoiding damp clothes and rooms, keeping rooms ventilated, and getting adequate sleep. She also addresses how to prevent and treat specific diseases, such as cholera and whooping cough. But she also writes candidly about women's bodies. She describes their anatomy, including reproductive organs, and dedicates many pages to, as she writes, helping with the most distressing complaints of women. In this passage, she writes about treating menstrual cramps. She says it is a great mistake to administer brandy, gin, or any alcohol to girls for relief of pain, and it's better to use hot water compresses because they are more certain to bring relief. And this one seems particularly modern in its frankness. It's about vaginal discharge, which she writes is a common complaint among women of all ages. She also writes about inflamed ovaries and menopause, using the euphemism of the era, change of life. If I were a woman in the 19th century, I think it would be a comfort to have such a book by my side, written in a straightforward, non-patronizing style about the things my women friends and I might otherwise only whisper about. It's just a phenomenal read. I think a lot of things that she says or wrote about in that book are prescient and still relevant to today. With a clear message for women's health and pregnant women's health, a book of medical discourses predated a well-thumbed pregnancy guide by a hundred years. Her book really was the precursor and the the format for what to expect when you're expecting. Her book seemed to be the the template uh, for that later book that many people in in our modern society are, are well aware of. Although separated by about 150 years, Dr. Melanie McLeod says she feels a strong kinship with Dr. Rebecca Lee Crumpler. Less than 3% of U.S. doctors today are black women. By reclaiming Rebecca Lee's story, her courage and her legacy can inspire others, particularly young black women, the way that Rebecca's caregiving aunt inspired her. I didn't have a family member that inspired me, but I had a black female pediatrician when I was a little girl, Dr. Doris Weathers. And I used to love to go to her office and I would hear how she helped people feel better. You know, I saw someone that I could relate to as a little girl who I'm sure had a a key role in my wanting to become a physician. So to see other people like you in doing something that you feel you want to do is an important thing. It, It really does matter. It's ironic that Dr. Rebecca Lee Crumpler and I ended up at the same medical school in essence. Uh, She basically wrote about women and children. I went into obstetrics and gynecology. And yes, I've become an author. I wrote a book in 2003 and actually I'm uh, finishing up one right now called Black Women's Wellness. What issues have you addressed in your books that you feel were not being addressed by the general medical establishment. My 2003 book was called Blessed Health, about physical and spiritual well-being, because black women, we're pretty good about our spiritual health. In fact, you know, we'll be in church all day on Sunday and choir rehearsal Tuesday and Bible study Wednesday and things like that, and do that every week of the year, but won't take one day of the year to go to the doctor and get that checkup done that can save your life. So that book was about that. 
to apply the same discipline to your physical health that you do your spiritual health. And that's kind of what Dr. Rebecca Lee was, again, stressing prevention. Rebecca Lee Crumpler died in 1895 at the age of 64 of fibroid tumors. Dr. McLeod and Victoria Gall have worked separately and since 2019 together to establish her legacy. And at one point, they considered having a commemorative stamp made, but no photograph of Rebecca Lee exists, even if, to their great frustration, the internet claims otherwise. And that's one of the things that Melody and I continue to do. Whenever we see the wrong photograph, we'll write to the people and say, you have Elizabeth Mahoney, who is the first black female nurse or Dr. Elizabeth Greer, or, you know, other people. But there was something Victoria could do about Rebecca Lee Crumpler's unmarked grave. In early 2020, she led a fundraising effort for the installation of a headstone in Fairview Cemetery. Within two weeks, she met her goal. Rebecca Lee Crumpler got a gravestone, and so did her husband, Arthur. Since our organizations are about history and community, we decided to take action and do something to acknowledge this medical pioneer who died 125 years ago. I just got off the train at Hyde Park Station. In the summer of 2022, our assistant producer, Shannon Rose Geary, met Victoria Gall for a walk through Fairview Cemetery to the Crumpler's gravesites. Here's where the graves are. Let's walk back around to the front so we can read the inscription. And it reads, the community and the Commonwealth's four medical schools honor Dr. Rebecca Crumpler for her ceaseless courage, pioneering achievements, and historic legacy as a physician, author, nurse, missionary, and advocate for health equity and social justice. Dr. Rebecca Lee Crumpler recognized that women's health needs were underserved. And since then, we've learned more about women's bodies. But how far have we really come if we still need euphemisms to talk about them? So these are kind of British, but like foo-foo, fanny, tuppence, fairy. It's just very confusing. You don't know exactly what it refers to or if it's just like down there. This episode of Big Picture Science that talks candidly about women's reproductive health is called Lady Parts. My name is Rachel E. Gross. I'm a science journalist. When I first got the idea for this book, I was a science editor at Smithsonian Magazine. She shares the personal story that gave her insight into what medical science still has to learn about female bodies. I was definitely thinking a lot about the history of science and kind of who gets to ask the questions and whose bodies and values are represented in science. So while I'm having all these abstract thoughts, I get this vaginal infection that's super annoying and going into my OBGYN every week and not able to get to the bottom of what's going on. After a number of possible diagnoses are proposed and rejected, 
It turns out to be this incredibly common bacterial infection called BV or bacterial vaginosis. Literally one in three women before menopause get it. And at this point I figure that my doctor is going to have a good solution for me and she does not. She says, well, honestly, this really just comes back again and again for a lot of women, but there is like a last resort thing that you can try, which doesn't always work. It's called boric acid, and if you look online, they call it rat poison, so I'm just going to tell you that now. I just had this realization that I knew so little about what was happening in my own body, and yeah, particularly like my vagina, my reproductive system, and I didn't think I'd be in this position where I felt really powerless and confused. And so that was kind of my first encounter with like, hmm, maybe medicine doesn't know everything and maybe I don't know that much about my own body. She says she figured that if she felt that way, maybe others were in the same boat. That insight prompted research and a new book. Vagina Obscura, An Anatomical Voyage. She learned that research about vaginas and uteruses hasn't come as far as we might expect since Dr. Crumpler practiced medicine. Either research into them hasn't been done or has been undertaken only recently. As women make up half the world's population, Ms. Gross regards this as a fundamental knowledge gap. This is bigger than like kind of a specific women's health issue. This is a human health issue. One aim of her book, Vagina Obscura, is to dispense with the indirect language that surrounds conversations about women's anatomy. How are we going to study it if we can't even say it? I definitely hope to be part of this movement to lift that stigma and that silence. I think it is necessarily the first step to understanding your body and feeling empowered about it is having the language to talk about it, to communicate with others, to share your experience. And I hope people will grow more comfortable using the words that are accurate and not tinged with negative cultural connotations. What are some of your favorite cringe-worthy euphemisms that you've heard for vagina? Oh my god. I mean, I heard a lot of them when I was hanging out at the Vagina Museum in London. So these are kind of British, but like foo-foo, fanny, tuppence, fairy, mini, like cutesy little girl names, I guess. Um, that was very surprising to me. So I guess mothers feel more comfortable teaching their young girls that. Um, but just it's just very confusing. You don't know exactly what it refers to or if it's just like down there. Um, I actually hate the word down there in nether regions that make it sound even more mysterious and obscure. Let's look at some of the new science, and we'll start with a familiar point of reference. Uh, Many of us are familiar with the human microbiome and even the gut microbiome, but you write about what scientists are learning about the vaginal microbiome. And in fact, you write, your vagina is another planet. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so um, after my own infection experience, I got really obsessed with the vaginal microbiome, which is literally a whole world, an ecosystem in your vagina. And it was shocking to me that no one had gotten super excited about this yet. We just had the gut microbiome and microbiome science get really big, and scientists were so excited that they could treat like devastating, deadly gut conditions by using fecal transplants, which you know, some people think are pretty gross. So why not look at vaginas, which are much cooler and less gross, and have their own microbiome that's really crucial to protection and disease. So the vaginal microbiome, it often used to be described as kind of an army. And 
what it is is there are billions of living microscopic creatures down there um, a lot of bacteria but also some viruses and fungi and this is an normal healthy vagina um, so what scientists think is that most of the healthy vaginas that they've looked at are kind of dominated by uh, one group which is called lactobacillus and it's the same kind of species that ferments milk into cheese or yogurt but there's different strains in the vagina they're specially adapted to hang out there and they're kind of like the keystone species of this ecosystem so they shape this niche that others can live in and one thing they do is they spew out acid that keeps the vagina mildly acidic around the level of a glass of red wine which i love um, and they also basically create a protective kind of defense against unwanted visitors and they keep that area kind of adaptive and resilient to a variety of things that can mess with the pH and the acidity. You write that in the 1920s, Lysol marketed itself as a safe and gentle douche for women. And I was horrified to read that. In fact, I had to read that sentence a couple more times to make sure that I read it correctly. Mm, yeah, there's a ton of just like ads in general women's magazines for Lysol. I think all the cultural messaging tells us that the vagina should be pure and clean and that it shouldn't offend and therefore we should use cleansers or douching or other ways to clean it. And yeah, that totally goes against the actual biology of this organ, which is meant to be teeming with life, protective life. And it's been found that things like douching actually strip away these helpful bacteria and make you more susceptible to infections and other bad stuff. Early on in your book, you describe how our understanding of the clitoris has changed dramatically. And before we talk about what you've learned about what we're learning, let's frame it by pausing to summarize what I've been calling the Freud hangover. Could you give us an overview of what that is as it pertains to women's anatomy? Yeah. So Freud came up with a lot of theories about female anatomy that quite clearly come out of the cultural soup he was living in and not out of any firsthand knowledge about the female body. He did not have training in gynecology. So he's working at the turn of the century in Europe and there's a lot of like masturbation panic going around and gender panic and concerns about women getting the vote, being too empowered, um, and being lesbians and not having procreative sex. And his theories are basically speaking to all of those anxieties. So what he does is says that a little girl has a clitoris and a vagina, and the clitoris is really the remnants of the male phallus. It's really like this tiny penis and she uses it to masturbate and she's really just clinging to some form of masculinity and denying the fact that she has to accept that she was born to be a woman and at some point she has to make this transition um which makes no sense uh to transfer her orgasm from her clitoris to her vagina and then she will start to have mature vaginal orgasms and then she will be a true woman who is devoted to being a wife, having babies, and not imagining that she has a phallus that she doesn't have. So this theory does a lot of bad things. I think foremost, it makes millions of women feel ashamed and inadequate about their sex lives and their anatomy, um, because 
literally Freud is telling them to have an experience that's very difficult, if not impossible to have. Some of the women I talk about in the book basically took this to mean that you have to have an orgasm in the missionary position with your husband, which is exceedingly rare. A huge minority of women would have that experience. And and to be clear, what they couldn't have, what they were having trouble having, is a vaginal orgasm. So the idea was ignore the clitoris, focus on the vagina, see if you can get your orgasm there, and and women weren't able to do that. Exactly, yes, Um, which makes sense because the clitoris is the organ involved in all orgasms. Anyways, um, yes, so Freud misled generations of women, and his theories also seeped into medicine. So you still hear about vaginal and clitoral orgasms today, even in women's magazines and in medical textbooks, and it's confused the whole field and really, to me, kind of tried to separate the female body into disparate parts when what we need to be doing is looking at it as a unified whole. Well, let's get to um, what we've learned about the clitoris. The long assumption has been, and research has been organized around this idea that penises are interesting because they're visible, they're prominent, and so we'll study those. And clitorises are, I think someone in your book calls it a little hill hidden not as interesting, but now we know that is really not the case. What have we learned about the nerve network of the clitoris? Yeah, so first of all, we learned that those kind of monikers, like you were saying, like little hill, little pillar, tiny bell, um, are just so inaccurate because everyone's referring to like kind of the nub on the outside, the part that you can see and touch. And really that's equivalent to the head of the penis. So think about how much more there is not only in the shaft of the penis, but actually internally as well. There's a whole nother third of the organ. Um, Same thing for the clitoris. You actually have 90% of the clitoris um, underground beneath the surface, and it's mostly erectile tissue. There's these two kind of tulip bulbs that hug the vagina, and these two arms that flare out into the pelvis, and they're made of the exact same type of erectile tissue as the penis. So it's really an extensive organ, and it also is super interconnected with the vagina, the urethra, and all other parts of the female pelvis. So there's no way to divide this up into what is the clitoris and what is the vagina. So the the clitoris has more nerve connections than we realized. And Rachel, why is it important that we understand that? What kind of myths does it overturn? I think that does go against some of these prejudices about women having like a lower sex drive or not experience the same kind of pleasure in sex or that just missionary style thrusting is really gonna do it. Um, So basically you have to respect the actual anatomy in front of you and not these mythologized ideas of what women are and how they're supposed to experience sex, I think. I like that. Respect the actual anatomy in front of you. And we're learning a lot about it. You know, as as I was reading your book, um, when I look at the dates of some of these breakthroughs in research, and they were in the last 10 or 15 years, I found myself saying, we're just learning that in 2013. We're just learning that in 2018. And, and why is that? Why is it that these stigmas and misconceptions are even just disinterest about the female reproductive system have persisted? There's so many reasons. And even though it sounds simple, a big one is really who is asking the questions and who is having the interest. And for a lot of history, the scientists have 
been not people with vaginas, clitorises, uteruses, and ovaries. And when they thought about these body parts, they kind of thought like, what can they do for me? So you see all these descriptions in textbooks about like the vagina is shaped specifically to hug a penis and to give it exquisite pleasure, not considering what this organ does for the person whose body it's in and that it might have other roles in immunity, protection, all the things we've been talking about. Rachel E. Gross, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Rachel E. Gross is a science journalist and the author of the book Vagina Obscura, An Anatomical Voyage. Next, a scientist who is changing the conversation about what has long been considered a woman's disease, endometriosis. The euphemistic title of this Big Picture Science episode reflects how far we still have to go in our understanding of women's health care and their bodies. This episode is called Lady Parts. When Dr. Rebecca Lee Crumpler set up her medical practice in Boston in 1869, she devoted herself to helping women address, as she wrote in her book, the most distressing of their complaints. Surely an especially distressing one for some of her patients was a chronic condition for which Dr. Crumpler could provide little relief. She wouldn't even have been able to make a diagnosis. The painful condition of abnormal tissue growth outside the uterus had been identified only a decade earlier and it wouldn't get the name endometriosis until the 1920s. Endometriosis is when the lining of the uterus or the endometrium is found growing outside the uterus, typically in the abdominal cavity, sticking to organs like the bowel, the bladder, the diaphragm, etc. And it can even invade these organs. Endometriosis undoubtedly touches your life. Either you have it or someone you love does. You certainly know many people who do, although they may not be talking about it. Because this tissue responds to hormones and causes bleeding during a patient's menstrual cycle, you get inflammation. There's nowhere for the blood to go. And this can cause tremendous pain. I'm Roshni Babel, I'm 24, and I got diagnosed with endometriosis when I was 20 years old. So I was used to having painful cramps, but I kind of, you know, took my Advil, brought heating pads to classes, kind of got through it. But the summer before my sophomore year of college, I started having daily pelvic pain. It is all-encompassing. It takes up every single cell of brain power that you have. It's really hard to focus on anything other than the pain. I mean, my pelvis kind of felt like it was being kind of taken apart or like had knives kind of piercing through it. It's a disease that feels like it's been trapped in the Victorian era. Although it can be debilitating and cause infertility, endometriosis has been understudied and is in fact so unfamiliar to some doctors that an accurate diagnosis can take years. Treatments that aim to relieve symptoms are limited, too. You have the options of hormone modification or drugs that prompt menopause or extreme measures like a hysterectomy. One woman and her team, though, hope to change that. 
I'm Linda Griffith, Professor of Biological Engineering at MIT and Scientific Director of the Center for Gynepathology Research at MIT. The bioengineer and winner of the MacArthur So-Called Genius Award became famous when she grew a human ear on the back of a mouse to test ideas about tissue regeneration. Now she's recreating a uterus in her lab. Linda, endometriosis. Now, this isn't a rare disease. I mean, I've known several women who've had it. Uh, can you give me some idea of how prevalent it really is? It is prevalent about 10% of reproductive age women have this disease. And by reproductive age, I mean even girls who are just starting their periods. It used to be thought that you only got it when you're in your 20s or 30s. But in fact, any woman who has uh, around the time her period starts may start to experience symptoms. And the symptoms can go long after menopause. I myself had two surgeries for endometriosis after having a hysterectomy. My goodness. Okay. So, I mean, the, the first thing is that it's simply painful. It's painful and presumably painful every month, right? Yeah, and sometimes painful all month. It can cause organs to stick together and twist out of place. Then you get uh, nerves being pulled on. So it can, for some patients, be painful all month. So they even need narcotics all, almost all the time. The pain is quite debilitating. It's often accompanied by vomiting and other symptoms that make it impossible for a woman to leave her home and go to school or to work. Okay, and, and you say it can also result, and aside from pain, and sometimes constant pain, it can also cause infertility. How would it do that? So the infertility could be physical because if the fallopian tubes get blocked and twisted up by the, by the lesions, you simply can't get the egg down to where it needs to be to meet the sperm. Uh, but it also can be due to the inflammation affecting the quality of the eggs and their ability to be fertilized. It may, the inflammation may affect the quality of the endometrium in the uterus because that's where the egg ultimately implants. We don't really understand all the factors because some women with stage four, lots and lots of disease, still get pregnant and other women who have very, a couple of lesions may not be able to get pregnant. So there's just not been the kind of studies done to classify patients into different categories in ways that would give us a mechanistic understanding because it's not likely one reason, but probably 20 different reasons, some of which are true in different groups of patients. We already know that some patients will respond to therapies like birth control pills and their symptoms will be less. And yet other patients don't respond or can't tolerate those therapies. So what we started working on when I started a research program is to ask, can we figure out why different groups of patients are different at the molecular level and develop new drugs that target pathways that no one has worked on for endometriosis? Well, I mean, I find that a kind of an encouraging answer in the sense that if it, in fact, is, is something, you know, cellular that could be, if you will, treated at the molecular level, that's a lot better than saying, well, this is just a, a, a funny condition, and the only way to treat it is to go in there with a knife. Yeah, I agree with you a thousand percent. So I spend, uh, it was very hard to shift my research program. I was a full professor with a very well-funded lab working on building models of liver and gut and other things. And 
bone tissue engineering, and I had to find the funding to shift into this area and learn about it. And there's not a lot of funding for gynecology and gynecology diseases, very little funding. And so it's been quite a wild ride. You, you said something about making models to understand other diseases. You're making a model about endometriosis. Now, I assume this is not a model made out of, you know, balsa wood and stuff like that. Is this a computer model? Is it an actual model? Are you growing cells? So we do build computer models based on analyzing patient molecular signatures. That gives us an idea of what might be wrong in the patient. Then we actually take tissues from patients and create a tissue bank and build models of the patient's lesions in little tiny microfluidic devices in our lab. And so we are funded by NIH to build an actual lesion living in the lab that we can look at in a microscope. And actually, we're at the process now of getting blood vessels to grow into those lesions so we can watch how immune cells and drugs interact with the lesions. So it's kind of science fiction. It gets me up in the morning because we're seeing some really wild things in the way these lesions behave. So yes, we build living models derived from patient samples, and we're grateful to the patients for consenting to let us use their tissues. I I, I might remind our listeners that uh, I remember reading about your research many years ago, I don't know quite how many, when you managed to grow an ear on the back of a mouse. And so, I mean, uh, that was a triumph of, of uh, well, <laughs> improving the hearing that was, of mice. That was very easy, actually. That was, that was very simple. It was very visual, but very simple. What we're doing to build endometriosis lesions is a thousand, no, a million times more complicated than the ear on the back of the mouse. How, how is this research related? It's an evolution, right? You know, the ear on the back of the mouse was in the early 1990s, so here we are 30 years later. And uh, it, a lot has changed because our ability to understand molecular mechanisms and manipulate the molecular mechanisms in the lab and manipulate cells and, and grow. So our science has advanced growing the ear. The ear has no blood vessels. We put it in the mouse, and the mouse body did a lot of the work. Here we're actually having to grow the entire lesion in the lab. We don't put it in a mouse. We put it in a very special reactor. You know, I, I would think that, uh, aside from treating endometriosis, that any sort of research progress here would be extremely important for other diseases as well, because a lot of them, I mean, maybe cancer is the obvious one, involve tissues that are, you know, gone awry and are beginning to grow where they shouldn't grow. Endometriosis is fundamentally a chronic inflammatory disease that affects the whole body. And so chronic inflammatory diseases and autoimmune diseases often skew female. So yes, many other diseases are benefiting from the kinds of tools and approaches we bring to endometriosis because they are shared by chronic inflammation and immune dysregulation and interaction of the immune system with tissues. So that is a common theme. This is kind of a naive question, but I'm surprised that this condition is so prevalent and still exists because you think that evolution would have filtered out any sort of condition that would affect your chances for reproduction. Um, Evolution didn't count on birth control pills and condoms, I think, uh, because a woman these days, if she doesn't have a baby, will have about 400 menstrual cycles. But the natural condition for a woman 
she, she would be having babies all the time. And so then you would not have that normal cycle of growth and shedding. You would have a lot fewer of them. So we could ask a question, is this mainly a disease or is the prevalence higher because women have children later, they have more menstrual cycles? I think that's a plausible hypothesis. I mean, what is the outlook for a long-term effective uh, cure for this? So there's treatments we have today, which I reviewed as, as all hormone modulators and then surgery. And then we can envision treatments such you may have seen the amazing results with cystic fibrosis drugs that are coming onto the market now. Just really, truly miraculous, almost cures for patients who could not breathe and had lungs filled with fluid. A small molecule drug that targets a defective protein in their cells is able to get their cells back to function. In the same way, we might imagine that we understand why these cells are invading into the bowel, and we put a small molecule in there that chops the legs off of the invading cells. That's one of the things we're working on right now in the lab. And so a pill that you would take that would target that invasion process and not damage other parts of your body minimal side effects, that's what we are working toward in our lab. Studying the way that cells invade in, in our in vitro models and asking, can we block this part or this part or this part? It seems to me that uh, small molecule drugs are the uh, gold standard for curing any disease, at least in the public's mind. Their, their, their question to you would be, well, when are you going to you know, develop a pill that I can swallow and it cures the disease and it just goes away? And, and it seems that you're considering that as a possibility. We are considering that as a possibility. We probably will have targeted therapies that will be linked to some measurement you'll make in the patient for whether or not she'll respond to that therapy or not. In this show, Linda, we've talked about the legacy of Dr. Rebecca Lee Crumpler, who was also a resident of the Boston area, note. Uh, and this was back in the 19th century. Her female patients would have suffered terribly from endometriosis, assuming that things weren't any different then, only there would have been no effective treatment or even diagnosis that Dr. Crumpler could offer. So did medical science in general have to catch up to this disease, or has it been ignored because it was a woman's issue? Well, those are intertwined things, right? Because you obviously had to have surgery to treat it. You didn't have hormonal treatments back in her day. And surgery was still mm, rather primitive. You know, anesthesia was only recently developed and so on and so forth. So I think, you know, she had limited ways to, to treat these patients. And I don't know that you know, I think, I think she probably used the best science at the time. And, you know, science has caught up, but I think there's still a lot of stigma with menstruation. And I'm trying, I'm leading efforts to destigmatize just talking about and studying menstruation because endometriosis starts as a problem of menstruation. Okay, so I'm sitting next to you in the subway and I ask, is this the last generation that will have to suffer endometriosis? I, I tell everybody I'm not retiring until that's true. <laughs> that's great. Linda Griffith, thank you so very much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. It's been really lovely to share all of this with you. Linda Griffith is a professor of biological engineering at MIT and scientific director of the Center for Gynepathology Research at MIT. Seth, it is that time when we reflect on the big picture of the episode. What are your thoughts? 
Well, what I've heard is that, in fact, because of this bias in medical research, historic bias, that uh, most of the researchers have been men, obviously they paid less attention to something like endometriosis, which, as we heard, is not only painful, but can also lead to infertility. And yet, we don't have much in the way of treatments for it yet. That's a reflection where scientists who've been mostly male have been focusing their attention. So my thoughts are that all of the subjects in this episode have been, until recently, shrouded in stigma or in silence or some form of obscurity, from the research done on women's bodies to the contributions of the first black woman doctor, Rebecca Lee Crumpler. I find the stories of pioneers fascinating because, after all, uh, the country owes so much to pioneers. Here was the case of an individual woman who was interested in health. She was black. She had to fight all the obstacles that society was going to put in her way just because of her race and her gender, and she managed to do it. I mean, those are real hero stories. They really are. Our great thanks to the guests who helped us tell the story of Rebecca Lee Crumpler. Victoria Gall, a volunteer with the Friends of the Hyde Park Library and the Hyde Park Historical Society. Perry Klass, professor of journalism and pediatrics at New York University and author of The Best Medicine, How Science and Public Health Gave Children a Future. And Melody T. McLeod, an obstetrician, gynecologist, founder and medical director of Atlanta Women's Healthcare whose recent book is Black Woman's Wellness. Also, thank you to Steve Marks and the Around Town team from Boston Neighborhood Network TV for sharing their recording of the Gravestone commemoration. This show would not be possible without the talent of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Shannon Rose Geary and Brian Edwards. Thanks to our intern Emily Yediker for her help on this episode. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization whose efforts include understanding the basic biology of life. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners and to our Patreon supporters. The original music in the show is by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. This episode of Big Picture Science, which looks at the new science of women's reproductive health, is called Lady Parts. <laughs> <laughs>